Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome back to Add Passion and Stir. It's our weekly conversation about food, about passion, and about making a difference in the world. There was a little girl holding a doll, and Sheikha leaned over and said, hey, what's the doll's name? And all of a sudden, the doll's eyes opened, and we realized it was a tiny infant that weighed maybe four or five pounds. We learned later that it was nine months old, and it was clear these people wouldn't survive if we didn't try to take them. So you broke the rules. You were six months into the job, and you just broke the rules. Well, You had to. We are in our Boston studio today, CyberSound on Newberry Street, and we are with John Da Silva, the very well-known chef now of Chickadee, uh, the hottest restaurant in Boston. It's in the seaport. I had a chance to eat there about three or four months ago. I can't say enough about the gnocchi. I can't get it out of my mind. It was so good. Uh, it's really, really special to have you here, chef. Wow. Thank you. I'm, I'm honored to be here, and thanks for the warm introduction. Thanks. And we've got a number of mutual friends in the chef and culinary community because uh, our strength is so rooted in that. Uh, and our other guest and I have a number of mutual friends because he's involved in some of the most important humanitarian uh, work uh, really in the country. And it's centered right here in Boston. Uh, Sasha Chanoff is the founder of Refuge Point, which is an amazing organization and a lot of philanthropists, foundations, activists in the community that support uh, Share Our Strength, uh, also support it, love it. Everybody is talking about you, it feels like, all the time. Sasha, uh, you've inspired a lot of people to really get involved in the world around them, and it's really special to have you here. Thanks for, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Thanks, Billy. Great to be here. Um, one of the things we always like to do is just kind of start with um, how you got to be doing what you're, you're doing. And I know you, Chef, have a pretty uh, distinguished uh, history in the, in the restaurant community here. You were at Nine Park with Barbara Lynch, who's very well known. I think, did you go to culinary school in New England, New England Culinary I did, Institute? Yeah. Tell us where the, the interest or the appetite for cooking first came from. Yeah, it started at a really young age for me. I grew up in a small fishing community called Gloucester, uh, which you might all be familiar with. It's got a great fishing tradition, very large Italian and Portuguese population. My grandmother and grandfather were Sicilian and Portuguese, respectively. And I, you know, I just remember growing up as a kid, we lived in a duplex with my grandparents, you know, so there was always something, something magical being cooked up in the kitchen. Who was the, who was the good cook in the household? Was it your grandmother? It was definitely my grandmother. My, my grandfather was a fisherman for a number of years, and then he retired. But I just remember, you know, early food memories growing up, coming home from school and you know, the smell of salt cod frying in the kitchen, getting home from school and my Nana just giving me like large amounts of bread slathered in copious amounts of salted butter. And we had a grapevine in the backyard. It was just a magical, magical time. And when did you say to yourself, this is what I'm going to do professionally? Well, it happened years later at 13, which for anyone who knows the legal working age in Massachusetts is 14. So I started really early uh, as a dishwasher at a an Essex institution called the Hearthside. And um, I started as a dishwasher. My mother was a waitress. My sister was a bus girl. And for me, it was- All at the same restaurant? All at the same restaurant. Okay. For for me, it was a way to, to make a quick buck, but also to still be close to my, my mom and my sister, who I loved. And um, I worked there for four years and it was constantly me just 
doing my work while also looking at the next station and wondering what else can I learn? What else can I do? You know, I just met some some really great people along the way who kind of nudged me in the right direction and kept me on the right track, you know, at a time where I could have easily gone the other way. And so, yeah, that's... Can you tell us about a mentor? Yeah, absolutely. So at the hearth side, you know, I'll go chronologically. At the hearth side, it was a guy named Jerry Smith, um, who was a fourth generation clam digger in Essex a line cook, a record store owner, and just one of the greatest people I've ever met. You know, he turned me on to, you know, great music and, um, you know, taught me a little bit about cooking. He was kind of a jack of all trades and um, just just one of the nicest people you could ever meet. When you say fourth generation clam digger, is that as hard a work as it sounds? Absolutely. That sounds right. I, I have memories of his father coming in and delivering the clams and, you know, hunched over because, you know, you could just see the decades of hard, hard work that man's been putting in. And, um, and you could also just taste the love in the, in the clams and the oysters that we would get, you know, it was. And he kind of took you under his wing and just started to what show you the ropes or give you pointers. Yeah. He'd show me the ropes. He'd teach me how to work the stations. I think more importantly than anything, he taught me a lot about music and, you know, what good music was and how to be happy in the kitchen. Um, Sasha, tell us, uh, you know, I, I think one of, to me, one of the similarities between Refuge Point and Chickadee is, you know, they, they both kind of burst onto the scene and quickly became a passion for the people who were involved in them. I remember starting to hear about Refuge Point probably five, six, seven years ago and seeing your name come up, having an opportunity to hear you speak at some different events, but it's really captured the imagination of so many people who want to make a difference in the world and find this to be one of the most poignant and compelling issues uh, and also one of the most effective ways to create change. How did you come to create Refuge Point? Yeah, I'd love to tell you, uh, but first your gnocchi reference at Chickadee, I have to try that because my wife Marnie and our kids Hayden and Lila, we were all just in Rome and we had this incredible gnocchi that the kids just ate up. So I'm coming over to Chickadee to okay, that, try the gnocchi. That's gonna, swap that's, notes. Rome's going to probably be a high standard, but I have a feeling the chef can meet it. It's really, it's, it's extraordinary. I was also a dishwasher starting out. Um, that was one of my first jobs at the Sudbury Farm supermarket where I got my first job. Respect. <laughs> Well, I started here in Boston working with refugees in the 90s after I graduated from college. I was working with Somali and Bosnian refugees, and I just felt... And why? And why? Just, I mean, like, what? how did you even get to that point that that was something you decided you wanted to do? Yeah, I wanted to work with people. My great-grandparents came here as refugees from Russia, fleeing anti-Semitism and pogroms. And so I just started volunteering at the Jewish Vocational Service in Boston. And I was struck really viscerally by this idea that if I could play a very small role in helping somebody who had gone through a lot of trauma and terror and often lost so much in their lives to rebuild, that was the most important thing I can do. And I remember this very visceral feeling that I had about that. So that was kind of the start here in Boston. Um, but then I had a chance to go to Africa uh, and and work around the continent and got a job with a UN agency called the International Organization for Migration. And, uh, and I had an experience there which kind of opened my eyes to the plight of people who were forgotten and overlooked and led to starting Refuge Point. And what was that experience? Well, the, uh, there was a lot of violence in the Congo and 
The U.S. government tasked our organization with sending small teams into the Congo to evacuate people who were being killed there. And uh, I was part of the last team that went in. So you're on the ground in the Congo trying to get people out yeah, there to was, here? Yeah, well, yes, they were actually eventually coming to the U.S. that we were evacuating them to Cameroon. The U.S. government had had an agreement with Cameroon to bring people out of the Congo to Cameroon and then interview them for resettlement to the U.S. And uh, my boss had given me a list with 112 names on it. These were people who were in a safe compound outside of Congo's capital. The compound was surrounded by armed guards, and they had survived these massacres in the Congo, and they were the last people that we were supposed to get out. And he told me not to diverge from that list. He was going to send me in with a few other people and a senior leader who had been with him, a woman named Sheka. And he told me, don't take anybody else who's not on this list. Go in there, get these people, get them onto a plane and fly them out. Uh, and so Sheikha and I went into the Congo to do that. And, and, and you succeeded. Well, yeah. So what happened? Like how did you know how to do that? Well, so what my boss said was you can follow. I, I had actually only been working with the International Organization for Migration for about six months. I was like, I don't know, six or seven years out of college. I'd never done anything like this. But I think my boss wanted to send me to assist this woman, Sheikha, but he also wanted made it really clear to us that we couldn't take anybody who wasn't on that list because things had gotten complicated in the Congo. The country was at war. We needed armed guards and escorts to do the things we were doing. And when Sheikha and I got in there, we went into this safe compound that was like this two-acre compound with armed guards around it. And we found the 112 people there. But And we talked to them and took their names and information and registered them. But as we were trying to leave, a guy who was working there said, hey, you have to go into the tent over there and look at the new people who came in. And I said, sorry, we're not taking anybody else. We can't look at anybody else. But this woman, Sheikha, who is senior to me, walked into that tent and I was following her. And um, in that tent were 32 widows and orphans. And a guy who was working there leaned over to us and kind of whispered, they just came in here. Most of their family lost their lives in, in these places that they were in, but we don't know how they survived and you have to take them out with you. And we looked at them and there was a little girl uh, holding a doll and Sheikha leaned over and said, hey, what's the doll's name? And all of a sudden the doll's eyes opened and we realized it was a tiny infant that weighed maybe four or five pounds. We learned later that it was nine months old and um, it was clear these people wouldn't survive if we didn't try to take them. So you broke the rules. You were six months into the job and you just broke the rules. Well, (laughs) you had to. Well, so my my boss had been really, this guy, David, who was a real mentor, uh, he he had told me, you you can't take anybody else. So Sheikha and I started arguing that night. And she, after a few hours, she's like, we have to try. And I said, I want to too, but we can't risk the lives of everybody that we, we know we can take out. And so she finally convinced me. And she said, I said, okay, let's, let's do it. She said, are we, or are we not humanitarians? And she convinced me that we were the ones there. We had seen these people face to face. It was our decision to make. And so we called our boss and got his approval after he got upset and managed to get those people out after a very harrowing experience. Uh, And they eventually came to the U S and that little baby that we thought was a doll is now in college and, uh, and I saw these people flourish and rebuild their lives here. And that led to starting this organization, Refuge Point. 
that finds solutions for refugees in the most life-threatening situations. And I think part of the thing that probably motivated a lot of people was that there was a, this really concrete results that we could produce. We could help people who were in the worst situations in the world get to a point in a place like the U.S. or Canada or Australia or other countries where they could actually rebuild their lives and have normal lives. And so I think that really inspired a lot of people to get involved. And where's Sheikha now? Sheikha is still working for the International Organization for Migration. She's on our board in Kenya. She sounds she, like a force. She is such an incredible moral force and 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 mentor to me. Uh, yeah, she's awesome. Well, I like. Uh, I always like people who break the rules. I don't know what it's like in uh, your business, Chef. But um, you know, at Share Strength, we always say first of all, there are no rules. We can do whatever we want or what we need to do. But particularly when we're hiring, I always look for what I think of as jaywalkers. I don't want people who are just going to stand and wait for the light to change, right? You want people who are going to take the initiative and take action. And um, I think that's important uh, to be successful anywhere. Um, a lot of people who have had you know broad experience on um, global issues uh, think that one of the most important issues in the world right now is the fact that we've got, I think, close to 65 million displaced people, refugees, people without a home. Uh, I was talking not too long ago to Dennis McDonough, who'd been uh, President Obama's chief of staff, who said to him, this is you know, the number one issue in the world. Give us, uh, I'd like to talk about it on both a macro and a, and a micro level. I'd love for you, Sasha, to tell us um, what the, the scale of that challenge is. Uh, and then I'm, I'm curious, Jeff, just because I've talked to so many restaurateurs who have in their restaurants a number of people who are either immigrants or refugees who have come from other places and have had to make that work and have and in many cases have seen how hard these folks work because it's so important to them to be here and to succeed. So I'd love to hear both of you to the extent you can. And I don't know enough about your kitchen chef. I'm just kind of presuming that you've seen some of that, but I, yeah, I haven't absolutely. yet met a restaurateur who hasn't. But Sasha, start us off with kind of the big picture and then let's talk about what it looks like in a, in a chef's kitchen. Yeah, I guess the big picture is that we're facing an unprecedented crisis in the world in terms of displacement there. As you said, nearly 70 million people now who have fled their homes because of violence and conflict and persecution. About uh, one third of those people has left and fled to another neighboring country and are considered refugees and the others are considered internally displaced people. The distinction is is only that. The fact is that all these people have fled because of violence and persecution. Internally displaced meaning they're still in their country? They're still in their country, okay. yeah. Like those people in the Congo that, that we met, they were internally displaced. They had fled their homes. They, many of them had been captured and put into prisons that had turned into um, execution centers actually, but they were still in their country. And then we helped them get out. But a lot of people do get out and fled lead to a neighboring country. So so now there are nearly, you know, 20 a little over 25 million people who fled to a neighboring country. On average it takes about 20 to 25 years before someone actually returns home to their country. And that's a timeline that's been increasing and increasing. So we're not only seeing more and more people displaced, we're seeing them displaced for longer and longer periods of time. And the whole uh response to this, which has been the common response since World War II, has been to give people essentially food and tents and emergency aid until they can go home. So that's meant that then camps have formed. Like uh, I started in Kenya and there are two camps in Kenya. One of the biggest in the world is Dadaab Refugee Camp. And today there are over 10,000 children whose grandparents arrived in that camp. So and that's not a place that you want to spend any amount of time. It's a brutal, harsh place with not enough food or education or anything. 
Uh, and so we're facing this crisis where there are not enough solutions. People don't go home. Resettlement, helping people get to the U.S. or another country is another solution. But that's always been fairly limited. Uh, usually 100 or perhaps 100,000 or more people have access to that every year. And there may be 35 countries or so that have programs that actively bring people to those countries. The U.S. has always been a leader in this. And during the Obama administration, it was like... Uh, it was the first time uh, that I saw that I felt the people working in the humanitarian response space were really aligned with what a government was doing because he really upped the game in terms of addressing global refugee issues. We've taken a complete turn on that now, and the Trump administration is really trying to decapitate the refugee resettlement program. But resettlement's another solution. And then helping people integrate into the countries to which they fled, like, say, Somali refugees going to Kenya, is another solution for them. Um, But that's a hard thing to do. So that's the big picture. We were just on uh, the border in uh, Texas and Mexico. We were in Brownsville and walked across to uh, Matamoros. And you realize how challenging it is. This is just a, a small kind of micro example of what you're saying on a, on a large scale. But um, our government has now um, created a set of procedures in which when you apply for asylum, you have to go back to Mexico and wait for your asylum case to be heard. And the challenge for so many of these uh, families is they're not from Mexico. They're from Guatemala or Honduras or El Salvador. So they've been months making the trek up and then they get put on the other side of the bridge in Mexico. So we walked across the bridge in Matamoros and things that, you know, um, that I didn't understand. Um, we also sat in immigration court one day. It turns out there's 22 dialects to the Mayan language. So for some of these kids who came by themselves or their families sent them with others, to have their asylum case heard, to have their immigration case heard uh, before they get sent back to the other side. Um, there's, it's not just a Spanish-English language barrier. It's a lot more complicated than that. But there's a, almost what you described. There's a tent city on the other side now of the bridge. There's about 600 kids in it. Um, and there's, uh, there's no food. There's no sanitation. There's no schooling. They're there for months. If they leave there, they miss their chance to have an asylum hearing because they have no contact point in Mexico, so they have to just stay at the bridge. And it's really a desperate situation. The the one thing that I found encouraging from a feeding point of view, Chef, and um, this kind of blew me away, is we went with an organization. Different faith-based organizations take turns feeding these uh, kids and families one night a week. And we went with an organization and did the feeding from, it took from like about six o'clock at night till about 8.30. And it, at first it was desperately hot and then it started to to pour. I mean, it was just very difficult and, and kind of chaotic. But afterwards I turned to my uh, colleague, uh, Chuck Schofield, who has worked at Share Strength for quite a while and had been down uh, in advance a few times. And I said, what did it cost to feed these 600 folks? At one point we were really afraid we'd run out of food. It cost one hundred and seventy-seven dollars. Wow! Uh, we had four <laughs> industrial-sized bats of rice and beans, uh, and a little bit of bread. And I, you know, I, I can't claim that we gave them a great meal, but uh, it was sustainable and sustaining for them, and they were very uh, happy to have it. But for one hundred and seventy-seven dollars, and of course, we came back thinking, you know, there's no excuse not to do this three hundred and sixty-five nights a year. This is an affordable, solvable thing. Yeah, that's um, a meal for two. At 
a lot of restaurants. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, but anyhow, we were talking about what, you know, uh, it might look like in a restaurant kitchen with immigrants, with refugees, with different cultures blended in. Is that something uh, you've experienced in, uh, you know, in, in any of your different paths along the way? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would say about 30% of the workforce at Chickadee is immigrant workers. And, you know, it's a lot of Colombians and um, El Salvadorans and Hondurans and, um food is a food is a wonderful thing it it brings people together um you know every morning they they make breakfast and they always you know they always share their food and your crew does your kitchen crew yeah mm-hmm. yeah um and and oftentimes it's the it's the colombian workers and the el salvadorans and they'll you know they'll share whatever they make with with me and you know with the rest of the team and and we'll talk about it and um you know, we'll get to know them better. And, and the more that you get to know them, the closer you get, you see pictures of their families back home. And it's, you know, some of the stuff is, you know, well, your family at home looks like my family at home. But in other cases, it's the complete opposite. It's very rural and very hard. And you see these pictures of very sad and, you know, a, a very sad state of affairs on the other side. And, these people working for me, they're just doing the best that they can, working as hard as they can, oftentimes two jobs to, you know, send money home to their to their families. And um, they go years without seeing their children or their parents. And it's hard to look at, but, you know, you don't turn away and, you know, you you offer to help them in any way you can. I mean, it's it's not easy as a business owner. There's not, you know, especially a restaurant owner, there's not a lot of money left over at the end of the day after you pay your purveyors and your rent and all this. But, you know, any way that we can help anyone on our team, whether they be American or Colombian or whatever, um, you know, we do it. We, and, we love these people. And isn't there a little bit of an irony now, I would ask both of you, in that um, I know this community, but a lot of communities around the country, Boston desperately needs the staff. The restaurant industry desperately needs the talent. And Sasha's written about how refugees revitalize communities, revitalize cities and, and economies. So I'm guessing there'd be times where it'd be very hard to make your business work without them, just to have the you know, the, the staff and the manpower. It would be impossible. I mean, without immigrant workers, uh, like I said before, they make up about probably at least 30% of the workforce at Chickadee and probably even more so in, in the restaurant industry as a whole. Um, you know, they do everything from wash the dishes, busing the tables, um, you know, at, at an entry level point. And then, you know, much like myself, they work their way up the ladder and, you know, a lot of them become chefs and servers and sommeliers and bartenders. And, you know, really, if you take away 30% of the workforce in an already, de- you know, workforce depleted industry, I mean, I think the effects would be devastating. I, I don't know how we would survive. I think we would, you know, I think we'd all be eating at, you know, chain restaurants every day. And that's really sad to think about. And I think there are uh, restaurants in Boston, Chef, that have had to uh, change their hours, uh, close earlier, things like that because of the the shortage of uh, staff and talent. Yeah, it's, and like I said, it would be devastating to, to lose that. 
And we're seeing that around the country too, in the hospitality industry, in the manufacturing industry, and other industries that have actually depended on refugees in particular for employees who studies have shown actually stay longer than other employees. we're, we're seeing some of those devastating effects now. And you're reading articles in the Washington Post and New York Times about places that say we don't have enough employees. That's why what Canada is doing is so innovative in terms of their labor mobility pilot project, which we've been part of. And they hope to build that and see other countries take that on too. And we're working closely with them to do that. Because again, you have refugees who are doctors, lawyers, farmers, chefs, you know, every, every profession that's out there and every kind of person that's out there. And a lot of them are, you know, maybe in Colombia, they might have been a doctor and, you know, they're cooking here or they're, you know, they they come from all different backgrounds. And this, you know, I think the restaurant industry provides a, a place for them to get their feet on the ground, get a steady paycheck and, you know, hopefully work their way back to where they, you know, the standing that they had in their own country. Yeah, you know, what? just when you think about refugees, the, the thing that I wish is that people who are anti-refugee actually spent a little time getting to know someone who's a refugee. Because if you do that, you see that that breaks down barriers. And food is a great way to do that. We've seen that across the country there have been dinners that bring refugees and local communities together. And once people do that, they change their minds. But it's people who don't know anything and just listen to the news and are afraid are the ones who say, no, no, we don't want this or we don't need this. Yeah, like anything else, so many fears are based on ignorance or lack of awareness or lack of any real life experience. And then that kind of perpetuates itself, unfortunately. I look at these people the way, you know, they, they've just entered this country. They have nothing, they, or if not nothing, very little. And it makes me think about my grandfather when he came over here from Portugal or, you know, your parents when they came over or your grandparents when they came over from Russia. It's, you know. Yeah, great grandparents. Yeah. yeah hundred I mean, years ago. But yeah. How yeah, how could that. we turn our backs on them? Uh, we need them. <laughs> and Sasha, this is something that you've thought about from an economic uh, standpoint, right? Making the case that um, this is a critical component of our of our economy and our society. Yeah, I mean, the right now, the Trump administration, like I said, is trying to really limit refugee resettlement, but there are so many important uh, things that the, the, our refugee resettlement program does, and there are no reasons to limit the program. Since it started in 1980 with the Refugee Act, we've brought in an average of 95,000 people every year, and those people integrate. My first job in Boston was as a job developer, and I saw how hard people wanted to work to rebuild their lives here. And and now we're bringing in... F- fewer than ever before in the face of the greatest crisis in the world. But from a national security perspective, our leading security advisors, both Republican and Democrat, all say that our resettlement program is important because it supports countries kind of on the front lines of receiving refugees. And we also see, if you look at it, that refugees do revitalize cities. There's a lot of cities like Lewiston, Maine or St. Louis, Missouri, that were on the decline. And Somalis and Bosnians and others who moved in started businesses. There's a great deal of entrepreneurship. I've even seen a lot of restaurant entrepreneurship uh, where refugees come in and shuttered downtown streets then become open with businesses, with shops and with restaurants and are revitalized. And so both from a national security perspective, from an economic perspective, as well as from a 
a leadership perspective, our resettlement program and what we do is vital to, I think, who we are as a country. The U.S. has the most stringent security system in the refugee space in the world. People go through so many different security checks before they actually arrive here. And over 3 million people have come here since 1980. And not one has committed an act where others have died here in the U.S. And there, there is really no evidence if you look at it the refugees here in the u.s are dangerous at all it's such a travesty that this issue has been politicized and people are afraid of refugees when if you actually just meet somebody you know you understand and know that they are just like you and me and we have a refugee resettlement program uh where it's it's very similar to to our asylum program but instead of people who arrive here and then get an interview we actually send department of homeland security, um, customs and immigration officials out to places around the world to interview refugees who've been hand-selected and identified by the UN Refugee Agency and by Refuge Point, the organization that, that I started. We do this work in collaboration with the UN to identify people who might not otherwise survive, like some of those people I talked about from the Congo or many others, unaccompanied children, others who are really in such danger in the places to which they fled that resettlement is the only solution for them. We've also seen that you know we reunite a lot of family members who've been separated. And so this is run out of the State Department, but there's a lot of agencies that are involved within it because because it's a, a big and kind of complex process with very serious security checks and security exams and medical exams and all different things before people actually arrive here. And once they arrive here, there are agencies on the ground here that help them to integrate. And that was my first job, was helping people to integrate and get jobs here. But the Trump administration has also really, in, in terms of trying to decapitate this program, it has reduced funding and so men, and reduced the amount of people that can come. So many of those agencies who are here in the U.S. don't have as much funding, aren't able to do what they're doing, and fewer people are coming. And again, it's such a travesty in the face of this unprecedented refugee crisis and the fact that whenever the U.S. acts— and refugee issues have always been bipartisan. Republican and, and Democrats collectively have supported this program. It's never been political or politicized like it is now. But when the U.S. acts, other countries act too. So we've seen when the U.S. encourages and welcomes people, other countries do that as well. And when we take a step back, it gives other countries leeway to take a step back. Thankfully, Canada is doing some good things. I was going to ask you what other options people have if they can't come to the U.S. Are there other good options? And I'm sure it you know, there are, there are lots of variables that would impact the answer to that, maybe including where you're coming from. But what what na- what nations do this really well right now? The biggest problem is that we've always done humanitarian aid with this emergency response framework, right? You get to a neighboring country, you get food and tents until you go home, but that just doesn't work anymore. So the new response that really needs to happen is that people need to get support so they can support themselves, so they can actually become self-reliant. And last year, the UN affirmed something called the Global Compact on Refugees, which is this big kind of guidelines on how the world should actually approach this global refugee crisis. And every country signed, except the US and a few others, every country affirmed this global compact on refugees. But one of the pillars of it is self-reliance, is helping people to get on their own two feet in the countries to which they fled. And so that's what Refuge Point does. We essentially help people in the most life-threatening situations, resettle to the US, Canada, Australia, EU countries, and others. But for those who are stuck where they are, we help them get on their own two feet, uh, make sure that kids are in school, that the family 
families can have some sort of way to generate an income in Kenya. That's often through entrepreneurship. And we're focused on innovation and and trying to expand those two solutions, resettlement and self-reliance for refugees. And again, when going back to the beginning, when you asked, why does this has this caught on with people? I think it's because we're really concretely innovative focused on solutions and getting people from point A to point B, which is essentially enabling them to stand on their own two feet. Chef, in terms of community engagement, restaurateurs get asked to do more things than just about anybody else in terms of philanthropy, charity, different types of community activities. Uh, Has that been your experience already, even just as a one-year owner with Chickadee? And what kind of uh, things have you gotten involved in? How do you decide what you're going to do? Yeah, it's hard to it's hard to say no. Um, we don't often say no. We probably say yes to about seventy five percent of the people that reach out. And I think we just kind of look at that as whatever we can give, we will give. We think it'll come back to us at some point. Doesn't need to be right away. I look at it as a matter of perspective. And as long as I'm in a position to help, I'm going to do that. And if it comes at the cost of my own time and my personal time, then I'll do it. I think we have an obligation as humans to do it. And um, it would be foolish not to. Well, Sasha, one of the things I'm curious about you in terms of how you measure success is you've got this monumental task that almost anybody would find overwhelming as you just described it, nearly 70 million uh, refugees or displaced people around the world. Uh, And you can obviously only tackle a piece of that as any one organization could, uh, no matter how great the organization. So for you, uh, how do you measure success for a refuge point? How do you measure it for yourself? How do you kind of calibrate your ambition and aspiration so that it's something big and bold, but also achievable? Yeah, uh, I guess in a couple of ways. One is that we we look at the direct impact we have on individual lives and and the stories that they tell in the the, again, coming from a place of utter desperation and hopelessness to a place of opportunity and hope. Uh, just Watching that and being part of that is endlessly inspiring. At the same time, one of the orientations that we've always taken is to try to support and encourage and engage other organizations to do the kind of work that we're doing. So, for example, with refugee resettlement, we've actually tried to get a bunch of other organizations to also identify refugees overseas who need to access resettlement because we saw when we started that every year tens of thousands of slots that the U.S. had made available were going unused. And so our thought was, let's not do this alone. Let's not try to kind of take a bigger and bigger piece of the pie. Let's try to grow the pie. And how we do that is through collaboration. We try to support others to do the kind of work that we're doing and collaborate with others. And I think that's also been part of maybe the distinctness of how we operate is that we are fundamentally for refugees first. And what that means is that I spend a lot of my time actually introducing the people who support us to other great organizations out there. Just for example, you were talking about the border here, and there's an organization called the Young Center yes. that deals with That's uh, who we were with when we were on the immigrant border. children's rights. Awesome organization. We've introduced a lot of funders to the Young Center. And so we've kind of become this kind of focal point for 
educating philanthropists about what the needs are and what organizations are out there and how to support other organizations. And we've we've helped to convene organizations, both large and small, together from like the UN Refugee Agency, IKEA Foundation, and some of the biggest organizations that are the service providers helping refugees together to try to have common goals and common ways of doing things. And so I think that orientation around both having direct service, where we're protecting and maybe even saving some people's lives, and the orientation of wanting to get more people doing this and wanting to get more funding into our field is part of how we've looked at success and think about success. Um. The other thing I'd love to understand how you've pulled off is when I think of, um, on the one hand, nearly 70 million people is an enormous number. On the other hand, they're almost invisible to most of us. I care passionately about a whole set of issues around hunger and poverty and social justice. And I'm so focused on what I'm doing in the U.S. that even though I care about it, I don't feel like I am educated enough about what's going on with refugees around the world. How do you make this an issue that people can relate to? And as I mentioned earlier, I know that uh, certainly in Boston, some of the most uh, progressive, enlightened, uh, wisest philanthropists I know, uh, Barry Landry, Beth Floor, Jim and Karen and Sarah, Stephanie Dodson, they're all so passionate about your work. Uh, what, what's been the secret sauce to getting them engaged? I think part of it is that they have also met many of the people that we've supported. And you see that they're, they're just like you and me, right? They have the same goals and aspirations and hopes and just want to rebuild their lives. So that's part of it. I think the other part is that we have really focused on supporting our field and building our field. And so we focused on highlighting other organizations. And, and so I think that's been a large part of our success. I think also when you see these individual stories – it moves and inspires people. Let's hear a little bit about what's next for each of you, Shep. How do you think about the future of Chickadee, the future for yourself? Is there a cookbook in the works at some point, that type of thing? What uh, What are you looking at when you look around the corner? Well, we're definitely looking at new spaces. And, and um, you know, I think when we opened Chickadee, we had plans for, we had a, a couple other concepts in mind. And so we're thinking about opening a cocktail bar and uh, looking at spaces for that. Um I would love to write a cookbook someday. It's uh, I've got a pretty vast cookbook collection between my wife and I. And, and you'd mentioned uh, in your first job where you were a dishwasher uh, that your mom was there, your sister was there. Do you have, do you have family in the business now? Uh, just about everybody. Um, really? Well, my father has been a cook his entire you know a, adult life, and uh, my mother was a server for probably thirty some odd years. Um, my sister was in and out of the industry for but a while. They're not at your restaurant. Not at my okay. restaurant. All right. Someday, someday, someday I might yeah. hire them. <laughs> Fun. Yeah. Um, Good. And um, Sasha, for Refuge Point, what's the future hold? Well, with refugee resettlement, we're working with a bunch of countries to try to get refugees to safety. But now we've kind of placed ourselves at the center of this field overseas. And so a lot of interesting opportunities are coming our way. The Canadian government reached out to us and asked us to help them build a labor mobility project to connect refugees um, with specific skills to companies in Canada that are desperate for employees. And so we just got the first job offers uh, a couple of uh, very recently for refugees who are in Kenya to go to Canada through uh, through work visas to work there. The 
um, we're also building this new family reunion program because we're seeing a lot of unaccompanied children who are on their own, who are in the most desperate situations, and their a mother or father or aunt or uncle may have gotten to an EU country or another country. And so we're actually helping to reunite those kids with their parents in those countries. And we're doing that across northern Africa. There's a great crisis in the central Mediterranean where a lot of people are trying to cross and about 17,000 people have drowned and lost their lives trying to cross and traffickers are as you've seen here at the border traffickers are also there kidnapping people so we're building this family reunion program and at the same time so that's around refugee resettlement with the the self-reliance work that we're doing we actually in collaboration with a bunch of different leading organizations in the world we put out a bold goal of trying to reach five million people in five years with programming that puts them on a path to self-reliance self-reliance for refugees essentially means the ability of someone to stand on their own two feet and and there's a bunch of different factors that go into that but one of them is an opportunity to have an income to see the kids in school to have food on the table to live in a place that feels safe and a number of other factors factors go into people being self-reliant. But our organization actually, in collaboration with a bunch of others, created what's called the Self-Reliance Index as a tool that the humanitarian response community can use to measure programming and how it helps move people to a point where they can stand on their own two feet. And we're building a whole effort around this with the, a bunch of different organizations and foundations and governments in our field so that people can stand on their own two feet and they don't have to wait endlessly in refugee camps camps in desperation with limited food and access to education, but they can feel like they're in a place where they're supporting themselves and their lives are normalized. And Sasha, I get the sense just from your tone, from your energy, from the things you say that um, not, notwithstanding the challenge that you're you're optimistic. You seem like an optimist. Maybe you have to be <laughs> yeah. in this work. Or, or if I'm wrong, tell me. No, I guess I, I really... Uh, I may have said this, but I draw inspiration every day from the people that I know and talk to and uh, and meet. So I I feel very hopeful and optimistic. Uh, in but certainly we're facing, you know, such a massive and increasing displacement. And there are so many people who are desperate. When you mentioned kids on the border, it made me think of all the unaccompanied children that I've met and know about and that our staff are working with. That's one of our kind of specialties is working with kids who've been separated from their parents who may be 8, 9, 10, 12, 14 years old and just want to get back to where their parents are. So yeah, I, I do. In the face of all this, I feel really optimistic. They're amazing people like those you mentioned who are here doing this with us. And so when you see that there's such energy and so many people and foundations that are engaged in this and want to see refugees find normalcy in their lives, and you can bring people along with the vision around doing that, it, it feels really, um, it feels exciting. And the way people can learn more about your work is, i um, assuming, refugepoint.org uh, is, a, is a website. We have a big Read for Refugees campaign that we're starting on October 1st for two weeks. And we have a bunch of best-selling authors from Margaret Atwood to Nick Kristoff to Neil Gaiman and Isabel Allende and Khalid Husseini, who are all doing this with us. And where's it taking place? All over the place or in Boston? Yeah, we're going to have an event yeah, on Newberry Street at the Pucker Gallery in Newberry Street on October 1st to My kick it off. Place. Yeah, I hope you can join yes. us. So that should be really fun. But yeah, refugepoint.org. I also wrote a book called um, 
um, from crisis to calling, finding your moral center in the toughest decisions, which some people have read and reached out about too. That kind of tells the origin story for Refuge Point and also talks a little about leadership and uh, and how people, how decision points that people face can change your life and highlight for you what your fundamental values are and how you can use that to help make decisions and move forward in your life. And the way to learn more about chickadee is to go and to have the gnocchi or the smoke trout. Last question for both of you. If there was a place you were going to eat in Boston, chef, uh, and it couldn't be your own restaurant, but you think people should know about, maybe it's overlooked, maybe it's just a favorite family go-to place, where would it be? What should our listeners know about that they might not know? Oh, don't make me pick. Oh, come on. You can do it. <laughs> um, That's well, why I, I figured it would be harder for you than for Sasha. Sasha, you might tell us a place that your kids like, but... Um, Can I name two two please. wonderful yeah, Japanese yeah. restaurants yeah, that I please. love? Okay, so the first is is the obvious one. It's Oya. I think they have been delivering an amazing, amazing meals and an amazing vibe for over a decade now. And the other is uh, Cafe Sushi in Harvard Square. It's, really? It's Cafe op- Sushi? Open okay. for over 30 years. Uh, Seiji Imura is the chef and... Uh, his parents ran it. Now he runs it with his brother. They just do a phenomenal job. And I think one area where they shine is in delivering some some underutilized local products and uh, local seafood. Um, and I really admire him as a person and the and the food that he's cooking there. So I would check that out. Excellent. Thank you. How about you, Sasha? We, my wife Marnie and I, love to cook at home, so we cook a lot. But our our first, we went out on a blind date in 2006 to the East Coast Grill, and and Chris Lessinger has always been kind of a hero chef uh, for me. Uh, loved that place. I haven't been there for a long time, but it's uh, it was fantastic. Thank you both for being here, Chef John De Silva. Congratulations on the phenomenal success of Chickadee. Thanks for your commitment to the No Kid Hungry campaign and for all the work that you're doing in the community. It was real. Really a treat to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for having me and thank you for doing what you do. And Sasha Chanoff from Refuge Point. I'm going to get the pronunciation of it right. Stop saying <laughs> Refugee Point, but from Refuge Point. Uh, really amazing work becomes more important every single day uh, in this country and around the world. And it's really been a treat to get to learn more about it today. So thanks for being here. Well, thanks to you too, Billy. You're an inspiration for all of us kind of starting social entrepreneurs. You're an icon in that field. So it's really uh, an uh, honor to well, be that here. That makes me sound old, but, <laughs> but, but thank you. Um, so you've been listening to Add Passion and Stir. I hope you'll go to our website, addpassionandstir.com or to Apple Podcasts where you can Listen to this and other episodes. You can rate them, rank them, subscribe, and let your friends know about our podcast, Add Passion and Stir. I'm Billy Shore. Thanks for listening. Add Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Add Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhall.